K-A-L-W. Like I visualized the soundtrack of my youth and it had everything from marimba to rock and roll to uh, Prince, Madonna. Today we meet KLW DJ Erica Vargas, who talks about the diverse music they grew up with, including country. Country music can be cumbia. Country music can be tribal. Country music is our ancestral music. Reclaiming country music. Then we'll hear a conversation about San Francisco's rich history of poetry. I didn't understand what I was reading. I read Howell, but it was the language. And we'll look back on the career of one of the Bay Area's most significant broadcast journalists. When I started applying for jobs on television, I had never seen a Black woman television reporter. The Many Stories of Belva Davis. I'm Hannah Baba, and this is Cross Currents. This Black History Month, Black folks are witnessing a moment of reclamation of country music. On February 11th, right after the Super Bowl, Beyonce released two country singles, sparking a conversation about who gets to sing country. This ain't Texas. All right, I'm loving that new song, Texas Hold'em, and not just because I grew up in Houston like she did. And when a country station wouldn't air that song, fans were quick to call and send messages to the station, which then played it. So this brought up the question, who gets to claim country music? One person who has thoughts about that is KELW's own DJ Erica Vargas. DJ Erica spins music on Sundays here on KELW. They grew up hearing the music of their abuelito, marimba, bolero, mambo, musica tropical, and classic country. And they draw on all those genres to cultivate a vibration they call genre-bending frequencies. I talked to DJ Erica about music selection and their musical influences. And first, we talked country music. Give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. So tell me about country music <laughs> and, and what role that played in your upbringing. Because, you know, country music is, is in the conversation. Oh. Nowadays, because of Miss Beyonce, uh, kind of reclaiming, you know, blackness in country music. And so, like, what's country? Who can sing country music is a conversation that's happening right now. So tell me um, about the role of country music in in your life, in your curations. Yeah, absolutely. I think this country conversation is much needed um, because country is like, so first off, what is a country? Country is like hills, open roads, out um, where most of the folks are that are in community, um, really connected with each other, move in um, groups, gather, communal living, all those sorts of things. That's that's country. Country music is our ancestral music. That's mm. I want to step away from the genre or how people may label it, but country music to me is ancestral music where those instruments that came from the country, the folks that came from the country, 
And we created that in gathering, whether it was through to the Most High, if we're praying, or it was in connecting and celebrating, or it was gathering around. But country music can be cumbia, country music can be tribal, country music can be um, house music, the guitarras, the banjos, all those things. Those came from the country. Um, that music is rightfully like plays to to the heart and the stories of struggle, the the stories of hardships, the stories of heartbreak, all those stories are told from the country point of view. That ain't no city view. That ain't no privileged view. Um, so that's that's been our music. That's that's what's healing. That will forever be our music. I don't let um, some award or genre or boundary, you know, make me think otherwise. Mm. Um, those hats protected us in the fields. Those boots have been ours. What's good? You are tapped in to 91.7 FM, KALW. Erica here with you every Sunday. I know you're from Southern California. Your dad is from Tijuana. Uh, you have some Guatemalan roots. So what was it like growing up? What kind of music did you hear growing up? Oh my gosh, a plethora of things. It was like probably the most diverse um, soundtrack in life. Like I visualized the soundtrack of my youth and it had everything from marimba to rock and roll to uh, Prince, Madonna, um, Led Zeppelin. I mean, so much because my grandfather really loved country and mm. tropical and cumbia, marimba and cha-cha-cha and all sorts of cool stuff. And then my grandmother loved Patsy Cline, and it it was so much. And I think that a lot of it just came from their roots and culture and their journey from where they were originally from to where they were at. And my mom, I mean, introduced me to like Rick James, Mary Jane Girls, Madonna, Prince, so many cool people that also had influence in how much I love fashion as a as a child too. It's always beautiful to be in company with you, connecting with you via the frequencies. This is your official invitation to discover genre-bending frequencies, magical gems, and new discoveries. Get cozy in the sounds. You talk about this idea of genre-bending frequencies. That's even on your Instagram. Yeah, yes. What does that mean to you? It means we go all over. We are not bound to one genre. We are not bound to um, see it through one lens. Um, love can mean a really good punk song one day. Uh, love the next day could be a really good, well-written Zach Bryan song. And so, you know, when I say genre bending, I always think it's very important to know that we can be people that are you know, dancing cumbias tonight, and we could wake up in the morning and, uh, you know, play 432 hertz and be lighting the incense and the palo santo, and we're allowed to do that. We should not be bound to think that because our upbringing or who we are or how we identify through our intersections, we're only bound through one type of music or can only listen to this. All our music is, is ours if we're connecting through it via the heart. 
right, Erica Vargas, thank you so much. Gratitude for being here. That's DJ Erica Vargas. You can tune in to their KLW DJ set Sunday afternoons from 2 to 4. And this Friday, we'll be launching a new music series called On Repeat. You'll hear stories about what makes each selection special and snippets of songs that may become your new favorites. That's at 7.35 every Friday morning during NPR's Morning Edition or at any time at klw.org slash onrepeat. This is Cross Currents. I'm Hanat Baba. Since October, KLW's been hosting town halls, listening parties, drum circles, even karaoke nights at our downtown San Francisco pop-up at 220 Montgomery. And we just found out that we're going to be here through the rest of the year. One recent conversation at the space explored the past, present, and future of San Francisco's poetry scene. Bay Area poets Norman Zelaya, Jenny Lim, Andrew Paul Nelson, and KLW's very own Josiah Luis Alderete joined us in a conversation moderated by KLW Executive Director James Cass. In this excerpt, James starts by asking them how they define poetry and how they define San Francisco. Here's Norman. I'm finding that, especially now, defining San Francisco is a, is a constant work in progress. For me, thinking about the work that I do, like where, like my source material, I mean, I'm always going back to home, right? I grew up here in the Mission in the 70s and 80s, and that's San Francisco to me, right? So flash forward to me being, you know, feeling that San Francisco for me was beginning to slip as it was becoming rapidly changing, you know, through gentrification. And then thinking now, you know, 25 years after that, at times feeling like a tourist and walking through San Francisco, like many of these things are no longer for me. Although I still live in San Francisco, I'm a public servant in San Francisco. I was still serving the community in a sense that's been decimated by all this rapid change. Um, but I still find myself writing the poems that I do and speaking about the people that I do because they're still here, right? And for me, it's important to continue to document this life experience for people because growing up, you know, I definitely felt like my life experience wasn't a part of San Francisco bigger, right? Thinking about San Francisco literature and poetry, I didn't know, I grew up on like the 19th Street side of, of, of Mission, so I didn't have, have any history of all the Chicano writers or folks that are doing great things during the 60s and 70s. I didn't have that knowledge. Mine was more cultural, you know, talking points, which were the beats, right? And that kind of stuff. So I didn't see myself in the culture. So when I started to write, 
you know, I was like, damn straight, I'm gonna write about the homeboys and the homegirls in the mission. And given all the changes, I'm still gonna write about the homeboys and the homegirls in the mission. Thank you, Norman. Who else um, has some thoughts? Okay. Um, you know, I grew up in San Francisco, born and raised, second generation Chinese American in the 50s in North Beach. And uh, we were like one of the two Chinese American families in uh, what was Little Italy. And uh, uh, I was uh, a, the a seventh child. So I had an older sister who got into the beat generation poets, into Zen, into yoga. And she, uh, I, I just went with her, and she was friends with like Philip Whalen. And, uh, you know, so she opened up my whole world to Ferlinghetti. I read Coney Island, The Mine. I read Howl. I was only like an adolescent. And then I would go to City Lights, and that was my library. So I read, you know, I didn't understand what I was reading. I read Howl, but it was the language. It was just so electrifying. I said, this, there's something going on here. I like this. I got to have more of this. And uh, so that and, you know, like I was just this Chinese American and we're right next to Chinatown, but I was so captivated. And I'd see people like uh, Jack Hirschman wandering around North Beach Chinatown. I didn't know who he was. And, the, and lo and behold, years and years later, I, you know, he would uh, invite me to his readings at the North Beach Branch Library. So this is the rich history I want to preserve through the literature of San Francisco. And then in 1970, I dis uh, the discovery of the poems that were, we were just talking, Norman and I, he was telling me about his first trip to Angel Island. I was just there Saturday uh, with the Del Sol Quartet. And um, the poems that were carved and written on the barrack walls of the Chinese Immigration Detention Center in a building that, buildings that were supposed to be demolished and was discovered by a park name, uh, ranger. And uh, he brought it to the attention of his Asian American Studies teacher at SF State. And they went and they photographed the poems. And lo and behold, it found its way into the community and then I translated those poems along with the hymn Mark Lai, and it found its way into the book Island, which received an American Book Award. So these two worlds, what was happening with Chinese exclusion, what was happening with the beats, and what they were, you know, freedom of speech, and then the whole trial uh, uh, that was lodged against uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti and the banning of Howell, it's about exclusion. And so I think I was politicized at a very early age, and that stuck with me. And that's the history that I think, you know, with all the, the biotech and all of this stuff going on and AI, and then all, I live in Soma and I'm with all these young tech people and I listen to the conversations and, you know, all, they do not know this history. And there's some way, if we're gonna preserve San Francisco, the character, of San Francisco, the integrity of San Francisco, we've got to make this history embodied. And that, that, that's what I'm here for. Thank you, Jenny Lim. I, I heard somebody today reference AI, the, the kind of AI they think we need to embrace more, and that's ancestral intelligence. Nice. <laughs> Anybody else want to talk to this? 
yeah. Uh, so uh, the history, the the poetry and the history, and for me, um, as a Chicano writer, uh, poetry is always represented memoria. I mean, it's it's an art form and it's beautiful palabras, but it's memoria, it's history, it's a place in the world, uh, and it's something that poets do because they have to, because we're here in a place that wants us to forget who we are, wants us to not remember where we came from, wants us to not know what an impact we actually have in this culture. Um, so poetry for me is very much those things. Um, it is also the mission that neighborhood, that place is, I, I, I was, I came up in the 90s there when there was, I mean, I'm not the first person to assume this and I know there's better people than me have said it. There was a, a literary renaissance happening there, you know. Valencia Street had four independent bookstores. Uh, there was the Cafe Babar reading series. There was a punk reading series at the Chameleon, at the Paradise Lounge, a little bit across. There was readings, Galeria La Raza was, the Lunada, uh, the Pandulce poets, you know. Um, so there was, it was an amazing place that for me growing up, it was like that was, that place taught me poetry. That place taught me the poets talking about their space, their places, their, you know. Um, so that neighborhood has always represented that for me. I, I know there's always been this sort of idea that North Beach is sort of the literary heart of the city and, and, and I, I don't, I'm not going to argue that, but I'm going to say that the mission, you know, was the home of the first Latino poet laureate of this city. Um, the mission is the home to where Avacha wrote and still roams through, you know, the mission was where Oscar Zeta Acosta wrote autobiography of a brown buffalo and revolt of the cockroach people on Valencia Street above what is now another wine bar plant store. Um, you know, the mission is, is, is where Kathy Arleano wrote uh, Salvation on Mission Street, man. You know, where, where I, I used to see this cat performing at, at, at Modern Times, Man Los Delicados, was this amazing group in the mission. Paul Flores, Darren De Leon, Norman Zaloya, that just, for me, redefined what poetry was. You know, I, I, first time, I, you don't know this, Norman, but I, 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 there was a payphone on the outside of La Rondaya back in the day that was like bulletproof, and all the junkies could use it because it would take callbacks. Uh, I, I was a junkie back then, and I would go there and use the phone. But one day I was walking by Modern Times, and I heard this, this. I heard these these three poets, and I had to tell my dealer to wait for a minute. <laughs> I went inside and listened to this, and it would change my life. And so the mission has always been what I think and believe poetry is, you know, in a big way and, and in so many ways. And also those ideas of, 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 and those waves of gentrification that have come over us and have erased parts of our neighborhoods. I don't say this in any soft way when, when I say that they can't erase those places from us. They're there in the poetry, they're there in the writing, you know, they're there. 
That was Pocho Poet and KALW Bay Poets host Josiah Luis Alderete. He was joined by San Francisco Jazz Poet Laureate Jenny Lim and Poet Norman Zelaya. That conversation was moderated by KALW Executive Director James Cass at our event space at 220 Montgomery. You can find a link to the entire hour-long conversation and find out more about what's going on at 220 at KELW.org. You're listening to Cross Currents from KLW News. I'm Hanat Baba. As we near the end of Black History Month, we're going to revisit an interview we did for our series, Witness to History. Bay Area broadcast journalist Belva Davis was among the most established and well-respected broadcasters in the nation. Before she retired in 2012, Belva Davis covered the UC Berkeley free speech movement, the birth of the Black Panthers, and the assassinations of San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk. She is a true witness to history. Belva Davis said one of the first and most important stories she covered happened back in 1964, when the Republican Party held its convention in San Francisco and Barry Goldwater was running for president. The man who came to San Francisco expecting to win the Republican nomination in a walk appears heading in that direction as the GOP convention opens. Senator Barry Goldwater is claiming more delegates than he needs to win on the first ballot. President Johnson had recently signed the Civil Rights Act, which Goldwater had voted against. Demonstrators wearing Ku Klux Klan robes showed up to protest in front of City Hall. Belva Davis was a young Black woman at the time, and she was new to journalism. She was asked to cover that GOP convention. This is her story. It was a convention where people of color knew from the onset that they weren't welcome. There were maybe nine or ten leading black men in the Bay Area that were activists within the Republican Party on the Central Committee, those kinds of things. So when my uh, news director, Lewis Freeman, and I tried to get, he tried to get credentials and bring me along as his assistant. Uh, I was not a news reporter. I was just learning the game. Uh, he was denied uh, press credentials. So one of these gentlemen got us two passes to sit in the rafters way above the convention hall. We went over, got into the darkest corner that we could, took out of our equipment, and started to report this story as best we could. It was a mean-spirited crowd up there in the galleries where we we were. And we did all right the first day because they were behaving for the cameras. But then there was a speech by President, former President Eisenhower that was like lighting a match in which he talked, uh, the words he said could, could have been interpreted as being racist. Um, and after that, all hell broke loose. Uh, uh, reporters were being, I mean, really big-name reporters were being um, taken, well, arrested, really. One, one of the leading reporters was arrested on that night. So we watched all this from a high. And finally, we heard somebody uh, down below yell, what are you inward people doing up there? 
And he screamed it in sort of a chant. And the next thing we knew, people down below us were standing, looking up at us. My news director, Louis Freeman, tried to be as calm and collected because he's a gentleman above all else, and decorum to him was everything. He simply said to me, I think we've had enough for tonight. Uh, I think we maybe should prepare to go. Well, by now, there's, there's a mob of people screaming all kinds of things. Up there, isolated where we were in semi-darkness, we felt threatened. We started down the stairs, and garbage started being thrown at us. I didn't really get nervous until I could feel a bottle whiz by my head. It crashed against the concrete, and my knees started to shake as we were walking down the ramp to get out of the cow palace. Um, and Lewis said to me, if you cry, I will break your leg. Just like that. And I looked at him. I was shocked. Straight in my back. And we both kept eyes straight ahead uh, and got down to the bottom. And then we looked at each other because we saw uniform officers. But coming from the South, we knew that was no safe passage. And we knew we still had the outside to the parking lot to go. We were both terrified. Uh, we were at a political convention for, you know, one of the two um, organizations pledged to protect the rights of American citizens and feeling that our lives were in danger. But that's the way it was that year. It was a year when the, when the Ku Klux Klan came out, uh, demonstrated in front of our city hall, uh, when they felt licensed to be as obnoxious about racial issues as possible. It was an experience that made me sure that I wanted to go into the news business because they were the only ones that seemed to be able to shine light on these people. And I wanted to do that. That was retired Bay Area broadcast journalist Belva Davis. That interview was recorded by Holly Kernan in 2011. Tune in tomorrow morning at 11. We'll explore why February has one extra day this year. Well, the year that we now have and basically consider almost a writ of God, you know, somehow it's just indivisible, there it is, actually has had an amazing history. Lost days and leap years in a special episode of 99% Invisible tomorrow morning at 11. For Cross Currents, I'm Hanat Baba. Baba.